Well, good morning, Center Church. Good to see you guys. It's fun, fun to be here, you know, just kind of in a different spot. Uh, I was actually thinking about last Christmas. I don't know what your Christmas uh, 2021 was like. Mine was kind of interesting. I found myself um, sitting in a living room with my mother-in-law and my wife, both with laptops open, finding that they just found an incredible coupon, a real steal of a deal for an exercise bike. And so they're going back and forth. They're like, we should, we should do this. We could do classes together. We could, like, track each other's progress. John, you'd get less fat. We can do all these different things. I don't know if they actually said that. That's kind of how I interpreted the whole conversation. But, but eventually it came down to, like, I think, we're, I think we're getting this bike. I think this is about to happen. And, and subliminally what I was learning was I was not working out to the level that felt respectable to the people that live in my house. Okay, basically just Lindsay. You know, it was like... She was kind of like, if we had this bike, then you really have zero excuses. All you have to do is put your shoes on and go downstairs. You don't have to say, it's too cold. I can't get out of my driveway. Or it's too hot. I don't want to put on the AC in the car, whatever. Like, I just was running out of excuses. And so I decided, okay, this has got to be a good thing for me. And it was. Like this last year, I feel a little bit more in shape than I did in 2021, thanks to that nice little exercise bike. But I learned something about human nature, and this is true of every one of you. Even if you haven't bought your gifts yet, maybe you have a gift on your list for somebody that is going to be hard for them to receive. Have you ever got one of those? It's kind of like a gym membership. If someone gets that for you, if they have like one of these wrapped up next to the tree, it's like, yeah, we, we got to have a, a talk, you know? So it's one of those. It's, it's the irony of like any time... Uh, Planet Fitness sponsors the ball drop. You notice this? You're sitting there eating all the leftover Christmas cookies, and they're like, you should go to the gym. You're big. Like, $10 a month, and you could get better. Like, it's just this funny thing is we're sitting there. And I was trying to think about this for Christmas because, man, I think this is true in, like, a lot of areas. But there are just some gifts that are hard to receive, but you know you need them. You know what I'm talking about? There's this hard, sometimes that's a word from a friend. It's like, oh, that stung, but I needed it. Or it's a moment with God where you know he's kind of correcting or disciplining or bringing kind of repentance or, or conviction to an area, and you're like, ooh, that hurt, but I need it. Uh, there's actually something at Christmas uh, much more important than, than a Peloton or than a gym membership that I think is really important to consider. And it's actually something that's easy to miss in the Christmas story. But it's the whole idea, and Christianity really is built around this concept. There's a gift in the Christmas story that if you miss it, you pretty much miss everything else. And there's something, and it's a word and an idea that maybe you don't even have on your radar this Christmas season. I certainly didn't until we kind of started working towards this series. But it's the idea of grace, now, grace can be defined really loosely as the unmerited favor of God. It's, it's God doing things in your life you do not deserve. It's him being good in ways that maybe you haven't earned. Another way to say it is grace is the gift that we need, not always the gift that we want. Grace is the gift that we need. And, and I don't see, it's so clear. I don't, I don't see it's any more clearly than how the gospel of Luke actually begins the Christmas story. It doesn't begin with Jesus being born in a barn and a cute little manger. It actually begins with, with three different characters, none of them who are Jesus. It's not Mary, it's not Joseph, it's not shepherds, it's not wise men. The Gospel of Luke starts out with three really unlikely characters. And I want to take you to how this story begins. If you have your Bible or even like a device, go to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5. 
And we're going to work through these like 12 chapters together in kind of sections, but make sure you, the reference will be on the screen so you can catch up if you, if you miss where we are. But we're going to start in Luke 1 and start in verse 5 and listen to how Luke begins the Christmas story. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So here's our three characters. You catch them? We got Herod, we got Zechariah, and who's the third one? Not your question. Okay, perfect. Jesus is not the right answer in this one scenario. <laughs> you know, it's the only time in church. Uh, Herod, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, these are the three characters. Now, it's important to understand who are these three people and why do they matter so much to Luke, he begins the story with them. Well, the first person is Herod. And Herod, as it says, is king of the Jews. He's basically the leader of a Jewish region called Judea, where, where Jesus uh, ultimately has ministry. He does life there. But Herod uh, was not a, necessarily a Jew himself. He was put there by the Roman Empire, who did not like Jewish people, basically to keep them suppressed, heavily tax them, and make sure they don't rise up against Rome. That was Herod's life goal. That's why he was put on this earth, was to make sure that didn't happen. And Herod was not a great leader, okay? So Herod is a paranoid leader, so much so that if you said bad things about him, he would throw you in jail or, or execute you. He actually had deployed secret police throughout Judea to make sure to, to try to catch up on any gossip in the marketplace or in the synagogues about Herod. If you were smack-talking Herod in public, he was going to find out about it. He's so, he was so freaked out, he later murdered several of his own family members, including his wife, Merry Christmas. One of the things that happened is as Herod's life is nearing its end, just to illustrate this guy, was he knew he was about to die and recognized, hey, I'm not really liked by anybody. Jewish people know I'm not Jewish. The Romans are just kind of using me as a pawn. No one's going to miss me when I'm gone. I've already killed half my family off. And so needing to feel loved, needing to feel like someone's going to mourn or grieve over him, he literally goes and plucks like 200 men from Jericho, these Jewish men, relocates them to Judea and says, when I die, you have official orders from me, the king, to kill all of these men so that there will be weeping in Judea over me. This is a twisted person. Like this is a messed up, sinful bad dude. No one is calling this guy a gracious leader. He's not, he's not got that reputation. One historian comments, Herod was willing to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. This is Herod. There's a naughty and nice list in the story. Naughty. You know, like he's on that side. It's pretty, pretty clear from the way Luke writes us who, who this person is. But then he introduces two other characters, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Now, if you had to put them on a list, it'd be on the nice side. You see verse 6 again. It literally says both of them, Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, were righteous. They were holy. They were morally perfect in the sight of God. And then it like stacks on perfection to that statement. It literally says, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. How was your 2022? Would you, would you describe it that way? I know I wouldn't. I've had moments where I, I don't think you could say, I perfectly absorbed every, uh, 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 followed every single thing God asked me to do. Just wouldn't work in my life. Now, if you look at these people in contrast to Herod, 
it's like they are they are the perfect picture of of someone who should just be blessed and favored by God, right? I mean, if you knew people in your life who you would describe as perfect and blameless before God, you think they've got their life together, they've got they've got all the kind of material things that prove that they're in a good good spot with God. But then if you read in verse 7, you find out that that formula doesn't always work that way. Listen to how Luke writes this. He keeps going in their story. He says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And to add on to that, they were both very old. He's saying they haven't conceived to this point despite effort. And they're very old and they're kind of aged out of that ever happening in their lives. Now, obviously, even today, infertility, bearing it, that is a difficult road to walk. Some of you have walked that. But in this context, it's almost like doubled down the shame and the pain that would come from being infertile and from being in, in Elizabeth's situation. I mean, we've talked about the different prison cells and how we interact with them. I mean, to me, this story is, is two people who are doing all the right things trapped in a prison cell of disappointment and unmet expectations. This is Zachariah and Elizabeth. All the right things were done, and yet they, they're not experiencing what, what they're really longing for, what they really desire. And in Jewish community, it's like children were a blessing from God. You can read the Old Testament. It's all over. Children, offspring, kin, they are a blessing from the Lord. And so if you're walking around with Zachariah and Elizabeth, you know they're old. Zechariah is a worship pastor full-time. Elizabeth is, is keeping the home and supporting her husband in that ministry, and they don't have kids. I mean, what conclusions are you drawing? It's like, well, maybe they're not that perfect. Maybe they're not that pure. Maybe they don't have the integrity that, that it appears that they have. And you can also just sense the pain in Elizabeth's kind of cry. You can almost hear her prayers, like in this story of, uh, knowing stories like Abraham and Sarah. Maybe you remember that Old Testament story where two older, elderly people have not gotten a child and, and he's supposed to be the leader of Israel and he's trying to pass it on. It's just not happening. And, and eventually they are able to conceive. It's like this incredible thing. God blesses them with this miracle. It's kind of this gracious act on his behalf. And you can almost picture Elizabeth like kind of quietly praying like, God, can you do what you did for Sarah? Like, can you do that for me? Can you do that for us? But eventually, you know this, you prayed something long enough, it doesn't happen. You get trapped. You feel like you've, you can't break through that prison cell any longer. And that's, I think, where you find Zachariah and Elizabeth. And, and it, it illustrates something perfect. You can just look at these, this small chunk of Scripture and you can see so much of how we understand grace to work. We, we understand grace much more like karma than grace, right? We think it's like kind of a Santa or Jesus is naughty and niceless, right? Herod, oh, he's bad. He did bad things. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they should get good things. Like they're doing good stuff and yet they're barren. They're not experiencing God's blessing. I mean, you look at them from the outside like God doesn't care about them. He doesn't love them. Like they're not able to have a kid and they're doing all the right things. Like the formula and we talked about in week one of this series how when we face the prison cell of our lives, whether that's other people have put us in or, or our own sin, our own addictions, our own brokenness have kept us trapped, we do three different things to try to get out of them ourselves. We try to liberate ourselves. The first we talked about, we, we declare, I'm wrongly imprisoned. I shouldn't be in here. I'm not guilty of any of this stuff. 
and we deny that sin and evil and injustice and brokenness even exist. And then we talked yet, uh, last Sunday, I was going to say yesterday, <laughs> last Sunday, about how we just try to decorate it. Like I find myself in a prison cell, it's just easier if I put up some decorations, some lights, some garland, and just pretend it's not that bad. And we never really get free. And this week, today, we're specifically talking about the lie of good behavior, parole. Like, we'll let you out, but you got to be good. You got to stay on the nice list. You got to do all the right moral things to stay out. And, and as a pastor, I don't have any experience in any of these arenas when it comes to prison or parole. That should be reassuring to you, hopefully a little bit, uh, that you know of at least or that I know of. But uh, there were some funny stories I came across. Just to illustrate this, because I knew nothing about parole, this is what I found, a quick Google search. This is a story from a parole officer. It says, I'm a case manager for offenders placed on probation to help people get their life together. It's, it wasn't my client, but one I know narrowly passed his diversion program instead of, of going to prison and finishing out the sentence, only to strut out to the probation lobby watching a rap video of himself waving guns around with a sheriff behind him watching it. He lost probation rights and was sent to complete his prison sentence. So that's... That's just a good illustration of, of what parole could be if you treat it the wrong way. So that's just a little life hack for you. Don't go to prison. Well, I at least warned you. So the story continues in verse 11 uh, with something that is just unexpected. Like you don't think this is going to happen in this story. This is kind of this inbreaking kind of miracle moment of grace, of God's grace in, in Zachariah and Elizabeth's story. Verse 11, <laughs> Zachariah's leading worship and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their kids and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Like this passage, this, this kind of promise from the angel to Zechariah is really what grace is like. It's like when nothing looks like it's working, boom, that's where God's grace shows up, where all the formulas start to fall apart, where the good behavior, the parole sentence, when none of it starts to work out for you, and it rarely ever does, it's like, bam, right there. That's where God's grace shows up. That's where his miracles take place. That's where the unexpected happens. And that's Zechariah's experience in this. Like, like basically, God calls him to not just experience it for himself, but then to convey grace, like John, this gift of a son is actually going to be one to bring the gracious work, the redemptive work of God to the nations. And we'll get into more of that later. But I look at this story, and maybe like you, I have a lot of Zachariah moments in my life. There are moments where I look back and say, God, I was doing everything right. I was serving you. I was opening doors for old ladies at the store. <laughs> I was like really trying to honor you with our money and our finances. And then this happens or that happens. It's like, that's not how the formula is supposed to work. That's not how it's supposed to work. 
God, I've been like Zachariah in this season of life, and, and yet this is still happening, or that person still said that, or I'm wrestling with this issue again. Like, and maybe you felt like that. Maybe even this Christmas feels a little bit like that. You're like, I've been good. Why, why is this all happening to me? Why am I still in this prison? I've shared with a few of you, I mean, few of you or many of you, depending on how many Sundays you show up for, that a couple, a couple years ago, really, I was sitting in a counselor spiritual director's office, and he kind of sh- shared a few things and said, why, why do you feel like you need to be here? Why do you need to go on this journey? I remember just listing a couple areas. I'm like, man, I'm doing this, and this happens, or I thought if I did this, this would happen. All these ways I was trying to kind of put like God into a mathematical calculation or equation. And basically, he steps back. He's like, what do you see on this whiteboard? He was just writing down everything I was saying. And I was like, honestly, Greg, I can't read your handwriting. <laughs> so I was like, I can't read anything you just put up there. You could have put up like a different language. I don't know. He's like, well, let me tell you what you have up there. He said, basically, what you have up here is a bunch of formulas. You had a bunch of kind of parole, a bunch of good behavior reports of, well, I was doing this, and God, you didn't come through. I was doing this and I'm still not experiencing freedom. I was doing, like, I was just listing all these things to him, and over the course of really years, began to unravel some of those and experience how good God's grace is and how freeing and how liberating grace is, even from the formulas of our life. And when your formulas don't work, really, honestly, that's all that's left is grace. When you've tried every single other thing, it's like God's grace is all that I got left. That's all I can try. That's all, all I can hope in. I love uh, theologian, philosopher Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning. You cannot earn what is defined as the unmerited favor of God, right? This doesn't make sense. Not effort, though. I mean, effort is, are you putting yourself in situations to receive God's grace? Stuff like communion or baptism or Sunday mornings or small groups or confession or serving or giving. All those, they're, they're positioning you for God's grace. That's Willer's point. There's effort there. It's a, it's a good thing. But when you slip into earning it, spiritual and religious performance, that's where you lose sight of grace. That's where you miss what God is doing in Zachariah and Elizabeth's story. And frankly, if religious performance saved people, we wouldn't need the Christmas story. Like, did you read how they describe Zachariah and Elizabeth? Perfect. Righteous in the sight of God. They followed every single thing God told them to do perfectly, blamelessly. And yet we're still barren, still didn't have Messiah. We're still trying to figure out a way through life on their own. Mary wouldn't need this story. Elizabeth wouldn't need the story. Joseph wouldn't need the story. You and I wouldn't need that story. We know how to perform. We know how to show up to church and act like everything's fine. We know how to like cover up stuff in our life. We're good at that. But grace is like when you get done with all of those formulas, that's where God starts to do his best work. And honestly, the more I reflect on this, I feel like 10 minutes of God's grace is better than 10 years of spiritual performance. If you just have it, you have an encounter with his grace, it it changes everything else. It sets you free from having to perform your way into favor with God. And and I love how Paul writes this in Romans 5, verse 15. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but it would be worth your while uh, this weekend to to read through some of these chapters. In in Romans 5, verse 15, listen to how he describes God's grace. 
He says, but the gift is not like the trespass or the sin. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? And that's kind of the secondary part of this Christmas story and even the season for us as a church or for you as a family or as an individual is that God's grace is described so many times in Scripture as a gift, and it is a gift. But just like a Peloton or a gym membership, a gift is really only as valuable as how much you use it. Are you willing to open it? Are you willing to receive it? And can I tell you, the, more, the longer I'm around church, the harder it is to embrace grace for yourself to allow God to break in and strip off the formulas, to break down the walls, to tear us away from idols, and to set us free. It means we have to open it to experience it. And, and that's why so many of us settle for the fake thing. We settle for good behavior and parole. It's just easier. It's just easier. But, but that's not the Christmas story, and that's certainly not Zechariah and Elizabeth's experience. Like God's grace, even in their own life, had discipleship strings attached it had missional strings attached. It was like, this is for something. This is not just for you. That's great that you're having a baby. We're so excited. Well, John's going to pave the way for the Messiah, the anointed one, to save not just your family from these formulas, but the entire world and all the generations to come. That's why you're sitting here. That's why I'm sitting here is because this story took place and God's grace broke in at the most disappointing Unmet expectation moment for Zachariah and Elizabeth and the rest of the story you know. Zachariah actually breaks out in like a prophetic song after this point. And we're not going to get into it, and I'm definitely not going to try and sing something like that. But if you go to verse 67 in chapter 1, this is what he does. He literally says, like, this is who John's going to be. This is how powerful this birth is going to be. This is, like, what God's going to do through this young boy. And it's really, really powerful. Again, you can go back and read it. But I think it's so fascinating that this is the story that Zachariah and Elizabeth will tell. This is what sets up the nativity scene, the cute little donkey probably licking baby Jesus, you know, like all those, all those things. This is, this is what pre, like sets up. This is the prequel to the good stuff. And God already has begun. You could see this in the story. He's already begun to act, already begun to bring in his grace to the darkness of Israel's moment, and for Zachariah and Elizabeth too. You know, I've seen this really clearly in my own life these last couple weeks. Uh, as I shared last weekend, I mean, it's been kind of a rough couple months for us as a family. It's not been awesome, but at the same time, there's been incredible moments of God's grace and freedom that's been brought in and some real blessings along the way. And I've had a couple of friends who just walked with me personally through some of this. There's people I reach out to, I've got accountability partners, people that pray for me on a daily basis. And one of those guys who's been a friend stood at my wedding, I'm just going to call him Ben for, for sake of the story, but Ben and I were talking on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and he recently was like, hey, man, I'm just processing this situation. What do you think about it? And I was like, okay, well, what's the situation? He's like, well, I didn't know this was going to happen, but through some sales and through some other things, we're ending up at the end of this year about $40,000 over what we thought we would have. Like, we're making forty grand off this sale. And I was like, he's like, what should I do with it? I was like, I have a few ideas. You could bless your friend up in cold Michigan if you want. Um, and, and so we were talking about it, and I said, well, what, do you f- what are some of the options? 
He's like, well, we could do this, we could do that, we could pretty much pay off our mortgage with that. I mean, it would be, it would set us up for like a really strong financial future. They've got three young kids. Like it would really prepare us for college savings and all these other things that, that we want to do. I was like, okay, well, why don't you just do that? He's like, I don't think God wants me to do that. I, I think he's telling me to do something else. I was like, okay, well, what is that? He's like, well, I've actually got a relative who lives out of state that has had some just unexpected, unexplainable medical circumstances, and it's, it's about $40,000 in medical debt that I know they'll never be able to repay. There's just no way. And, and I really feel like what God said to me a few weeks ago was that, that my wife and I, like Ben's wife and I, we need to pay off this debt for them. Now, I'm a pastor, so I would like to say, amen, brother. Like, that's the holy thing to do. Yes, go do that. That's super generous. Instead, what I said was, uh, why don't you do like a matching thing with them? <laughs> like, you pay 20 and, and, and then they can cover the other 20. And he's like, uh, he's like, dude, there's no way they're going to have that amount of money. They're spending collections. They just have, it's just hanging over them like a weight. And I was like, well, I mean, the responsible thing for you to do would be take care of your own family. So pay off your mortgage, set yourself up, and maybe you can help them later on. He's like, I just don't think I can do that. I was like, well, what do you really feel like you need to do? He's like, I really feel like I need to, we need to write them a check and just pay off this medical debt for them. So they're free and clear, they have no debt. And I hung up the phone and I was still kind of scratching my head. I was just like, I don't know, does that make financial sense? I mean, it just was counterintuitive to like everything I've, I've ever learned or even practiced. It was like radical grace to them, radical generosity. And then I sat back, and this week I was preparing for the sermon and thinking about this message and, and just God's grace in my own life. And isn't that kind of the Christmas story? Like against all odds, against all rationalities, God sends Jesus to us. People who, who had weight and a debt and sin that we could never overcome on our own, and then he actually sets us free free and clear to live in that grace for all of eternity. Isn't that kind of why we're doing what we're doing today? Like, just like Ben, we needed someone to say like, I know this doesn't make sense, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm gonna set these people free anyway. Like, that's what grace is. It can't be any more different than karma or a naughty and nice list. It's, it's a radical, unmerited, beautiful favor of God in our lives that just breaks in at the most opportune and at the same time unlikely moments. And I don't know what that means for you. I don't know if that's a word for you, if it's going to be a word for somebody else, but here's what I do know. That Ben had a radical encounter with God's grace at some point in his life. Ben is serving him. He serves in ministry. And at some point, grace has to be extended to others to truly be experienced. Like you ever think about why did God create us? Not like he had a hole in his heart, but he just had so much love in his heart. It had to be shared with something, somebody, and that's you and I. That's why you're here. And that's how God's grace works. And I don't know, again, maybe it's for you. Maybe you need to embrace and receive the gift. You gotta open it up. You've known it intellectually, done all the performance stuff and it's like I'm just going to set aside the formulas and God I just 
I'm gonna seek you, I'm gonna seek your grace. Maybe for you, it's just having the courage and boldness this Christmas season to either show up for Christmas Eve or invite some people into it with you. Even if you're not here, to gather up online or or to invite someone to a, a different service time than you're planning. I, I don't know what it is. We got invite cards here that are no good after this Christmas Eve. And so I'd love you just clear us out. Just take them. Just give them away to people. Pray over them. But, but that's what it means. That's what happened in Zachariah's life. That's what happens in Ben's life. That's what's happening this Christmas for us as a church. And that's what needs to happen for all of us, I think, too is recognizing that truth. And so I'd love to pray for you this this weekend, and then we're gonna take communion together as a way to honor and celebrate this. And So would you pray with me? God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you that in moments where we feel the most trapped and most in, in chains, that you just remind us, I'm, I'm right here. I've got the key. I've got grace for you. I've got something so much better than good behavior or parole or performance. I've got true freedom, true life. And so we just take that up today. God, I pray for the person who maybe they're online right now and they just feel like they don't deserve your grace. I pray that you'd remind them how much they don't and how good you are to give it anyway. I I pray for those of us in the room who may feel like, yeah, I've got kind of the rituals down, I've got the motions down, but but I'm I'm far from God. I feel distant from him this Christmas. God, I pray that your grace would break in, that your presence would be made real and tangible to them right now in this moment. And I pray for us as a church, God, would you give us the courage, the urgency, the boldness to just be obnoxious about inviting people into this Christmas Eve, not because we need a room full, but because we know there are hundreds, if not thousands of people, five, 10 minutes away from this building who are far from you, who do not have hope, who don't have the peace and joy that Christmas brings, who don't have you at the center of their lives. And I pray, God, would you use us as your ambassadors to go out and to be the ones to bring them in, to invite them in, because you've shown incredible grace, radical grace to us. And so we, we pray that you do that work in us as we just step into these last few moments together in Jesus' name.